Good evening, good day everybody. Welcome to episode 60 of the Ask Abhijit show. It's good to see you all. Let me see who all is there with us today. Let us see who are there. I can see... I can see Nathan, Monish, Pranav, Harsh, Sandeep, Sudeep, Bharat, Samarth, Gautam, Aryan, Rishi, Ayush, Samrit, Gokul, Suvam, Dr. Saurabh, Vaishak, Akash, Janshu, Prakash, Cherry, Ajit, Pink Line Cabs, Harshada, Harshit, Super Rex, Vishal, Sunny, Mega Star, Khusro, Aish, Yuvraj, Somya, Karan, Parama, Priyansh, Pratik, Radha, Daksh, and lots of other people. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So what shall we discuss today? What questions do you all have? Let's take, let's take some questions. Let's see what all you've been asking. Okay, let's begin with this question. It's by Gayatri. Gayatri says, you said in one session, India didn't get freedom in 1947. It was a transfer of power. So what do we need to do to get freedom? What will freedom look like? Will we ever get there? I think we'll certainly get there. What do we need to get freedom? We need to decolonize completely. We haven't even begun the process of decolonization. I mean, if you go to the judiciary in India, they will insist that you speak in English. If you speak in a local language, they'll throw you out. That is colonization. We are still colonized. Our constitution is a colonial constitution. Right? It is it is a Western constitution. It doesn't, it is not based in Indian values, in, in uh, Indian culture. It is based in Western values and Western morality. Our laws are still, most of them are still British laws. I mean, what sort of joke is this? We are still a colonized nation. Freedom is decolonization. We need our institutions, our constitution, our laws to be Indian in nature, based on Indian values, Indian principles, Indian culture. And our governance system has to be Indian in nature, not this fake democracy that is only democracy in name. In a real democracy, all the institutions are accountable to the people. In every democracy in the world, in the West, etc., the judiciary is accountable to the people. It is appointed by the people and it can be dismissed by the people. A judge can be dismissed for non-performance. Can that happen in India? <laughs> so this is called colonization. We are completely colonized and most of us don't even realize it. Our, our laws are so, so regressive, so incredibly Hindu-phobic and so on. So that's why we are not really free. We will be free only when we get rid of the colonial baggage. It's, the process hasn't even started because it suits the politicians to keep India this way. Because that way they are able to rule us instead of serve us. Right? So that, that's what freedom will look like when we change all this. It, it can happen. Hopefully it will happen. When will we ever get there? I don't know. I would like to see it happen tomorrow, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe in the next 20, 30 years, perhaps. I would like to see it in our lifetimes, you know. So that's what I that's what I meant by we did not get freedom in 1947. We still don't have freedom. Okay, what else do we have? Let's take another question. (laughs) 
<laughs> from which university did you study? Does it matter from where I studied? Have I learned anything from any university? I went to school, college, university. Did I ever learn anything from there? I mean, whatever knowledge I have, which is why you come and see these sessions. Do you think I acquired that knowledge in school, college, university? I acquired none of that in school, college, and university. Edu the education system is a complete and total waste of time. The only reason why we have to go through the education system is to acquire a degree because you can you cannot get a job unless you have a degree. You, you have no status in society unless you have a degree. So education is all for degrees and status. That's all it is. But it's all pointless. It's worthless. It doesn't contribute anything to society. I, I have not learned anything of value, unfortunately, from school, college, or university. I cannot think of a single class I attended, a single lecture that I attended, in which I learned something that I did not already know. I have learned everything through self-study. I don't remember a single teacher who impressed me. That, that's just the way it is. I mean, think back to your childhood, to when you attended school, college, whatever. Did you really learn anything there? You had to learn everything on your own through homework and through going home and studying the textbooks on your own or going to tuition classes or whatever. Just randomly mugging up stuff. Right? So that's how it is. So it doesn't matter in India, in every, in any other country also. I mean, today everyone knows this scam that is the Ivy League education system in the United States. It's a scam. And that's how it is. So the real knowledge that you can acquire is, is something you do through self-study. I don't have any guru. I have learned, nobody has ever taught me anything. That is the, the sad truth. I have learned everything on my own. So it doesn't matter which university I went to. It's immaterial. It's pointless. The knowledge that I, whatever little knowledge I have, I have acquired it on my own because of my curiosity and because I invested, I don't know how many hours, reading various books and various other sources of knowledge. So that's what it is. All right. Uh, let's see some more questions. So, Based Gamer says India's average IQ is given as 82. Is it true or some Eurocentric data? I see, you know, I'm not sure how accurate IQ is in actually um, measuring someone's real intelligence. Uh, the, the, the guy, what's his name? Nassim Nicholas Taleb calls IQ a pseudoscientific swindle, right? That's, that's point number one. So IQ may not accurately reflect how intelligent a person may be, right? But it does show some cognitive abilities and, it's a, and things like that. Uh, people who achieve, who are, who are great achievers, typically tend to have higher IQs. So there could be some relation, but it may not be entirely accurate. Now, India's average IQ, who has decided that India's average IQ is 82 on, on the basis of how much data? And is that data actually representative of the of the nation as a whole? 1.3 billion people. I don't think India's average IQ would be 82. I think Indians are the most intelligent people in the world. More intelligent than the Chinese, more intelligent than the Jews, more intelligent than the Europeans, Americans. I think Indians are the most intelligent people in the world. So I, I if if the, whoever is decided or or calculated India's average IQ as 82, they need to have their own IQ examined again. I would say, right. 
Armed Forces Lover says, the role of China in the Manipur attack and at the same time, the presence of Chinese army in POK, any relation between them? See, the POK is in the northwest of India. Manipur is in the extreme east of India. So there is no relationship between the presence of the Chinese uh, soldiers in POK and what happened in Manipur. That's thousands of kilometers apart. But I would say that the Chinese certainly have a role in whatever insurgency has uh, occurred in the northern, uh, in the in the eastern. We call it the northeast. It's actually the far east of India. So whatever has happened in the past, in the past uh, since the 1950s, 60s, etc., whatever insurgencies have uh, erupted in the northeast, uh, they they the these uh, movements emerged for a certain reason that had nothing to do with China, but the Chinese suddenly took advantage of that and and uh, fanned the flames. They have supported various terrorist organizations uh, in Manipur, in Nagaland. Nagaland, it's it's still you know very much active. There is a lot of separatist separatist uh, sentiment in Nagaland, which is mainly fanned by two uh, forces. One is the Chinese. And the second is the West through the through the Catholic Church. So that is certainly there. Yes. Now, what is the role of China in the Manipur attack? Uh, I'm not sure which terrorist organization is responsible for this attack. Manipur has been a hotbed of of insurgency and terrorism since the 1960s and 70s. It all started for a certain reason, and later the, these terrorist outfits just began became uh, essentially uh, gangs of ex- extortionists. And the politicians uh, were at at a certain point in time very deeply involved in that. So I'm not sure which terrorist organization has uh, claimed responsibility or if any of them has claimed responsibility. Uh, there, you know, Manipur actually half of Manipur is more than half of Manipur. I think eighty percent of Manipur is currently uh, the the people. See, it's like this: Manipur is about 45 percent Hindu. The rest is all Christians, converted uh, converted uh, tribals. The Hindus are confined to just one place in Manipur, the Manipur Valley, the Imphal Valley. Uh, let's take a look at the map. You know that that will make things uh, easier to understand. Uh, okay, let me share my screen. Okay, let's go to maps, maps, and let's go to Manipur. So we have Manipur here. So this is the state of Manipur. And now you have this, this, okay, I'm not sure if you're able to see this. Let me stop it and let me share it again. Okay, this is the state of Manipur. If you can see here, this is Manipur. And this is the Imphal Valley region. This is the only place where you have Manipuri Hindus, the Mithes. And all of the parts of Manipur are 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 in the possession. Are, are the people who live there are tribals who are converted to Christianity. And in Manipur also you have this uh, this weird law there, like we had in Kashmir, which did not allow, <laughs> which essentially doesn't allow Hindus to buy land outside the the Imphal Valley. Hindus can only live in the Imphal Valley, and they are not allowed by law to buy land anywhere else. So the entirety of Manipur, 80-90% of it, has been is, is now occupied by people who owe allegiance to Nagaland. They call themselves Nagas. 
right? So a significant portion of the, uh, well, terrorism, so to say, in Manipur is actually done by uh, various Naga outfits. And many of them, uh, let me share this again. And many of these Naga outfits actually uh, operate from across the border in Burma. So this region, if you can see my mouse pointer, is Burma, Myanmar. And this region is home to the same tribal groups that are present in Manipur. So many of these activities happen from across the border. If you remember a few years ago, we, we had to do a surgical strike in Burmese territory on, the, on one of the Naga terrorist outfits. The Kaplang group, I think it was. And the Chinese have been supporting uh, these groups. If you look here, it's just a few, a couple of hundred kilometers, and then you have the Yunnan province of China over here. So they essentially ferry arms, ammunition supplies across Burma into Manipur and Nagaland. And that's how these terrorist outfits are supplied by the Chinese. So I think it's quite, uh, it's quite possible that uh, the Chinese have a hand in this. One of their spokespeople, the, the spokesperson, the editor of the uh, Global Times, he actually tweeted about this, that we, we can use, we can support uh, separatists and terrorists in India's Northeast as one of the ways to retaliate against India. So they, it's part of their official policy. So it's quite possible that the Chinese have a hand in this. And if that is the case, they need to be taught a lesson. This cannot be allowed to go on. So, right. So that's the answer, sir. Okay, let's take some other question. This is by Lata Ramesh. Please give your opinion about Kangana's statement about independence given in 1947 is a bhiksha or, or it's, it's a donation. Do you agree with her or do you condemn, condemn her statement? I do not condemn her statement. She is right. Uh, like I said earlier, we did not get any real independence. It was given to us on the terms of the British. We did not get the kind of independence we wanted. We, we actually got dominion status in 1947. Then according to historians, dominion status was revoked in 1950 and we became a full independent republic. I will... You know, there are many people who still dispute the claim that we may still be under dominion status. And the papers and all the documents have not been ever made public. So independence is never given. It is taken. Let me let me uh, show what Mustafa Kemal Ataturk had to say about this. All right. So, okay, well, let me share my screen. Here we are. What did Mustafa Kemal Ataturk have to say about sovereignty? So Mustafa Kemal Ataturk was the founder of Turkey. He liberated Turkey in the Turkish War of Independence in the 1920s, early 1920s. This is what he had to say about sovereignty. Sovereignty and the right to rule cannot be conferred on anyone, no matter who, as a result of an academic discussion. Sovereignty is acquired by force and power and violence. Sovereignty is not given, it is taken. And this guy fought. He fought for Turkey's independence. He got Turkey, he made Turkey an independent nation on his own terms, not on the terms of the Western powers. The Western, the Western nations had divided Turkey into a number of pieces and they supported the uh, Ottoman Caliph, Abdul Hamid II, I think his name was. And it was the kind of thing we have in India today. It was a rule based on Western values. It, it was independence 
quasi independence for turkey based on what the west prescribed for turkey on on the on the terms of the west of the western nations the, the nations that were, were that won second, the, the first world war so it was a humiliation for turkey and that was not in accordance to what the Turk, turkish people wanted so mustafa kemal atatürk fought the war of independence he defeated all the all of these occupation powers and he acquired independence for turkey on his own terms so that's why turkey is able to pursue an independent geopolitical policy and you may agree with it or not even i may not agree with it but at least they are genuinely independent right so we are not genuinely independent we are still laboring under the weight of colonialism so so kangana ranaut is completely right independence it was not independence we are still colonized if you're colonized you're not, you're not independent and whatever so called independence we got was dominion status it was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks appointed by the first set of crooks right so so she's right i agree with her all right let's uh, take some more questions aman asks does india have any benefit of s400 what aman is saying is what is the benefit of acquiring the s400 system for india i mean we would not try to acquire something that expensive and something you have to wait for for so long if it were not of some significant use for us so what is the s400 system it's a missile defense system uh it has a range maximum range of 400 kilometers so you can take out you, you can destroy incoming missiles or aircraft etc at a range of 400 kilometers or less typically you would do it within a range of 100 kilometers so this is a russian made system they had the s200 earlier then the s300 and now we have the s400 they have already developed the s500 which is an even more advanced system and that has not been exported anywhere else thus far so the russians are exporting it to us we they have begun the first deliveries i am sure we have received the first shipments of the s400 and they will be installed on the northern border with against china the chinese also have the system so the russians uh, sold the system to, to the chinese but then they sold it to india as well which tells you that they are not as friendly with china as people would make it look like so india is acquiring this this is the best system of its class in the world it is better than the us uh, uh, aegis class system uh, what is the system called i think it's the aegis system it's it's the system that's installed on the aegis class destroyers that form the defense uh, entourage of the uh, aircraft carrier strike forces in the us navy and so on so uh, the s400 is far better than that system it is better than the iron dome system of israel which is something that's localized in a small region and so on and so forth so it's the best system of its class in the world and it is going to give uh, india the ability to wipe out any target any 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 potential chinese incursions through air via with with fighter aircraft or through cruise missiles or even possibly ballistic missiles it's primarily an anti aircraft system so it can take out lots of aircraft at the same time it can track multiple aircraft and, and take them out it has multiple layers multiple layers of missile defenses and so on so it's a very good system it is certainly worth 
buying the system the turks have acquired it the chinese have acquired it and now we are on in the process of uh, getting the deliveries so it is really good it, it's possibly a game changer for india because you see new delhi is just a few hundred kilometers away from the from the tibet border and the chinese would possibly want to do a decapitation strike if we if we go to war with them someday if they initiate a war with us so it's certainly good to have the system and uh, yeah so it is certainly beneficial for india this is by anish abraham huge fan from johannesburg so nice to have uh, have you here from johannesburg nice to meet you uh, please tell us more about the tokarians are they the ancestors of the tari mummies the huns etc good question so who were the tokarians okay let me go back to the map 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 oh yeah i need to share the map just a minute let me share it so the tokarians are an ancient uh, population group they used to live in this region here so you see this here is india as you know if you go north of kashmir then you reach this part of this geographical region which is currently part of china's xinjiang province this is the tarim river basin so uh, this is where these people used to live the tokarian people you find these mummies very well preserved mummies the mummies are very well preserved and these are very very old mummies several thousand years old like typically 3 4000 year old mummies they are very well preserved because of the extreme dryness of this region this was once a fertile region the tarim river basin i think this is the hotan river but there is a tarim river also somewhere here so this is the tarim river uh, basin and that's where these tokarian mummies are found and they have also found uh, pieces of ancient text etc so in india in the ancient days these people were called the tushara people and the tokarian name comes essentially from the tushara from the from the word we had for them the tusharas so who are these people so if you look at the tarim mummies the, if you look at the mummies of these people they look more like europeans than indians they are typically many of them are, many of the males are about 6 feet tall or even taller than that many of them have red hair or blonde hair and uh, so so that's that's how they look but if you examine their genetics those are indian genetics r1a1a which is the indian uh, haplogroup it originated in india about between 18 and 26000 years before today so it uh, these people had indian origin patrilineal genetics yes but they looked more european than indian like than present day indian so red hair blonde hair all that tall or fair skin etc because we have very well preserved mummies and their language is called the tokarian language the tushara language so let's see what that language looks looked like let me see so let us look at what their language looked like so this is the it's an extinct language it's about 4000 3500 4000 years old and this is the script the independent vowels and all that now if you look at the consonants of this language it goes like this ka kha ga ga na cha cha ja ja na ta ta da da na ta ta da na pa pa ba ma 
Yaralavasha, etc. This sounds exactly like Sanskrit or Hindi or any Indian language, right? So that is how the sister, the, uh, the classification of the language was. Uh, linguists classify the Tokarian language as part of the centum group of languages, of Indo-European languages. For instance, uh, Persian, Sanskrit, Hindi, the Indian languages, etc. These are classified as Shatam languages, Shatam. And uh, Greek and Latin, etc. are classified as centum languages. So linguists have classified the Tokarian language as a centum language, not as a Shatam language. And yet you can see the significant similarity between this language and the way uh, Indian languages are classified and the consonants and all that. Even the script actually looks somewhat like many Indian scripts. So that's how it is. So this is one of the uh, ethnic groups that is attested in ancient Indian texts like the Ramayana, the Mahabharat, etc. I think the, the Tushara people participated in the Mahabharat war and so on. So it is quite likely that this is an ethnic group that at some point in the distant past traveled out of India. We know of many migrations that are attested in ancient Indian texts, migrations out of India, northwards out of India, westwards out of India. This is most likely one of those ancient groups that migrated out of India. Many other groups are known, the Yamnaya, the Scythians, etc., etc., etc. The entirety of Europe was populated by Indian origin people who migrated long ago out of India. And then these Tusharas, uh, they seem to be the ancestors of the Kushans. So we know that the Kushans invaded and conquered parts of northern India about 2,100 or so years ago. And they established a very powerful dynasty, a very, very great dynasty. Kush, uh, Kanishka the Kushan was, one of, was their greatest emperor, was our greatest emperor, one of our greatest emperors. And he was in no me by no means a foreigner. He did more to promote and strengthen Indian culture than any almost any other emperor that I can think of since since his time. And as you can see, they had Indian genetics and they spoke an Indic kind of language. So yes, uh, the Tokarians are essentially the Tarim mummies, and they are most likely the ancestors of the Kushans. I don't think they have anything to do with the Huns. The Huns are a different ethnic group. The old Huns were called the Xionyu by the Chinese. And uh, the, the, the Kushans, what were they called by the Chinese? They were called the Yuechi or something. So it's a different ethnic group, right? So I don't think they, they are not related to the Huns, but they are certainly related to the Kushans. So that's what I can tell you in brief about the Tokarians and the Tarim. Mummy is a fascinating chapter of history. And very good question. Mark Max says, very big fan. Thank you. Keep keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jay Shri Ram. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Let's take some more questions. Sonali, I have answered many times. So you can check out my older, my own, some of my old video clips. Uh, Samrit says, why have Indo-Russia relations deteriorated over the years? See, the world changes. Geopolitical equations change. It, we, there is no such thing as friendship in geopolitics. It's all about convergence of interests. So in the during the Cold War era in the 20th century, India was a satellite state of the Russians. 
it is because of the policies of the great Shri Jawaharlal Nehru ji, right? He was a lover of socialism. He was a lover of whatever else, you know, Fabian socialism. So he chose to adopt the Soviet socialist model. And he did not even do that properly. So it led to the horrific Nehruvian rate of, rate of growth that stifled India's development in the, in the, during most of the 20th century. But India was a geopolitically uh, good uh, ally to have for the Soviet Union. And that's why India and Russia had very strong relations during that time. It's because India was very useful to the USSR as something, uh, as a counterweight to American influence in Asia. And that's why we had very good relations. And they used to supply various weapons and things like that to India, the MiG-21 and various other things, some submarines, etc. Now, after the collapse of the USSR the, uh, and the breakout, breakaway uh, of the various uh, Central Asian republics, etc., Russia's priorities changed. It first became a capitalist economy during Boris Yeltsin time, which was a horrific mismanagement of the country. The country went deep into poverty. Then Vladimir Putin took over and he has strengthened Russia again. Now the world has changed. It is no longer a unipolar world with one single superpower. Now we have the Chinese threat. The Chinese are a threat to India. They are a threat to Russia also. But the US is so anti-Russia that the Russians have kind of uh, created a quasi-alliance with the Chinese because, because their interests currently align. Now, India is drifting towards the US as something that will help it in its uh, to, to uh, counterbalance China. And that's why our interests don't align as strongly with the Russians as they used to earlier. But we do have a common enemy in China, and that's why we still have reasonably good relations. And there is a great deal of warmth between the two, between the two nations, between the peoples of the two nations, etc., and between the leadership leadership also. I think Mr. Modi and Mr. Putin have a very good equation, you know, personal equation. I think Mr. Putin is supposed to visit India in the near future, so we'll see how that goes. That'll be interesting. So I think they haven't really deteriorated. The relations aren't bad in any way. But they are no longer as strong as they used to be because of these reasons. Currently, the Russians are involved in Afghanistan because they want to they want to maintain a certain presence in Central Asia, which they regard as their traditional sphere of influence. They don't want, don't want the Chinese to gain too much influence in this region, and the Russians are also, uh, in some way, uh, they are associated associating in in a variety of ways. With the, with the Pakistanis also, which they never did in the, in the past. So they are doing whatever serves their interests best. And we have to do whatever serves our interests best. That's how the game of geopolitics is played. There is no friendship and, and so, such like, right? There are no friendships and enmities. You have interests, national interests. That's, that's the main driver of everything you do. So that's the status of India and Russia and the relations between these two nations. Somia says, what is the origin of the people of Pakistan? Baloch, Punjabis, Pashtuns, Sindhis. I mean, do I have to answer this? The origin of the people of Pakistan is India. Pakistan is Indian territory. I'm really <laughs> surprised to see this question. 
if a pakistani goes abroad do they look like a separate ethnicity from indians no pakistanis afghans pashtuns punjabis balochis sindhis uh, kashmiris and so on and so forth these are all indians it's the indian ethnicity it's the indian genetics indian languages but it's a different religion and culture which is why it's a separate country so that's the answer okay let's take some more questions Mm-hmm. Dungar Singh Chauhan says recently a woman was found suffering from breathlessness in Canada the reports are saying this is the first case of climate change in the world how serious is the problem of climate change she was suffering this was a person who was suffering from asthma and various and diabetes and some other conditions and the doctor decided to diagnose her with climate change climate change is not a medical condition this is just to gain publicity or or a spotlight in the media climate change is not a medical condition right so it is just a publicity stunt that this doctor did but how serious is the problem of climate change it exists it is there you cannot deny the fact that climate change is a real thing Cli- the see the the earth's climate has been changing ever since the earth was formed climate change is a, nat- a natural process but in the last 300 400 years it is certainly it certainly has a, a component which is because of human activity as well so since the industrial revolution the europeans uh, burned so much coal and and oil and all that to to kick start their economy and make them prosperous that it has uh, released an enormous amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere i would say the majority of all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which has uh, been released since in, in the past 3 400 years the majority of it is because of the western nations and today they are trying to blame india and china for it which is nonsense but yes there is certainly a human activity is certainly a significant cause of climate change today especially all the carbon that is being released into the atmosphere all the deforestation that is happening and so on and so forth it is a serious problem so that's what i can say about this yes Tanuj says what is the contribution of literature particularly fiction in the development of a society literature is part of culture isn't it fiction is part of culture of uh, there are various kinds of literature there is literary fiction there is a pulp fiction popular fiction there is poetry there is there's a lot so it is certainly a very significant component of a society's culture and the kind of literature and fiction that is popular in a society is an excellent barometer it's a it's an excellent indicator of the attitudes and mindset of the society so if you look at and not just literature and fiction the kind of games you play the kind of content you consume online uh the games i mean if you look at let's let's take american society for instance uh there's this uh, deep rooted gaming culture today every kid plays games right xbox or playstation or online games or minecraft or roblox or whatever if you look at the nature of these games what do you see it's all about shooting and killing that's the kind of 
culture that is prevalent in in american society that's a kind of mindset and attitudes that you have there and the result of that is that every other week there is a school shoot shooting or a mall shooting or something or a mass shooting somewhere so it is an excellent barometer of the kind of attitudes and mindset that a society has and again if you look at uh, literature and fiction it also reflects the same or for instance look at india there is almost no literature or fiction being produced in india in, in indian languages so that tells you that indians are losing touch with their roots right and uh, whatever is being uh, published in english it's unfortunately very mediocre in my opinion in my personal opinion i have certain standards they, they may differ from your standards or other, other people's standards i am saying it from my perspective right from my perspective the kind of literature we have in this country is ridiculously mediocre um so it reflects the kind of uh, society that that we have today unfortunately indians are not a mediocre people indian society is not mediocre it's a great great culture the oldest civilization the greatest civilization but we are passing through a phase of mediocrity which is the result of all the social engineering through the education system the media and all that right i i i get the feeling that inside the head of every indian there is a bollywood song going on at every at any given point in time so that's the kind of brainwashing and mindset we have in this country today there is no science fiction being written in india why is that because there is no understanding of science there is no understanding of what future one would like to envisage there is no science fiction being produced in india that is so disappointing so yes you know the literature and fiction is an excellent barometer of the state of society at any given point in time very interesting question very good observation right right okay this is by shyam do you think that india has plans to take back pok in the near future as the s400 is deployed on the pakistan border i don't know where the s400 has been deployed i don't think it's a good idea for the government to announce that it's been deployed here or there i would expect that it will be deployed on the tibet border uh, pakistan is not such a big threat we can deal with pakistan in dif- in in other ways uh it is mainly to counter the chinese threat that we have purchased the s400 that's that's my assessment and i don't think the government has made any any announcements of where the system is or will be deployed so that's point number 1 now does india have plans to get pok back of course it does we will get pok back when it will happen i am not privy to those plans so i can't say but i would say in the next 5 to 10 years it will happen maximum 10 years when the time is right and we will make the conditions right before we can before we go ahead with whatever needs to be done right so i think it will happen within the next 5 to 10 years but as for uh, as far as the s400 system goes i personally believe it will be deployed it will be more useful on the tibet border all right uh tenjin tamang says what will be the breakthrough discovery in the 21st century in science so science has lots of different uh domains different spheres when it comes to technology you have artificial intelligence you have uh, drone technology that has revolutionized everything you may have flying cars and all but that is not really something that will uh, 
that will be accessible to everybody. It's going to be something like a luxury thing. But artificial intelligence, machine learning, these algorithms that permeate the entire entire human social sphere today, that is one of the big things that has ch changed the world in the last 10-20 years. But what will be the breakthrough discovery, let's say in physics? I would say I would like to... Um, we need to understand the force of gravity better. We don't understand gravity. We still are stuck in the 20, early 20th century. The uh, general theory of, theory of relativity was uh, discovered and published in 1915. Ever since then, we have uh, achieved no further understanding of the force of gravity. And that is what is impeding our understanding of the universe today. Because we don't know what dark matter is, what dark energy is. We think of black holes of singularities therein, but actually that is a mathematical blowing, blowing up of the Einstein field equations. So what I would like to see hopefully is uh, the discovery or the understanding of the quantum nature of gravity. If we can achieve that breakthrough, it will completely transform and revolutionize our understanding of the universe and the laws that uh, govern it. So that would be a breakthrough discovery in theoretical physics, in pure, in pure physics. In technological discoveries, these uh, occur in an incremental fashion. For instance, artificial intelligence is not something that suddenly was thrown upon us. It's being it's been under development since the 1960s, you know. But only now, with the kind of computing power that we have, have we been able to implement it at the scale that we see it today. So, in pure physics, I would like to see the the discovery of the and of of the quantum nature of gravity uh, so that would be for me personally the breakthrough discovery in 21st century the 21st century was supposed to be the century of gravitation thus far it has not been hopefully it will happen deepan bhattacharya says why do most indian parents discover, discourage their child from doing research it's because of the uh, climate of scarcity in india you don't have enough jobs to uh, for everybody, right? I mean, everybody wants a high-paying job. Everybody needs a high-paying job to to live a decent middle-class life uh, lifestyle. Anything below middle class is poverty, right? Nobody wants their children to suffer in poverty, and that's why parents parents are afraid for the children's futures, right? That's why they want the children to do well in school and college and university, whatever. Get the degree with high marks and high high uh, percentages and all that. And then get a nice, safe job in some industry, in the government sector or private sector or whatever. And then have kids and all, all that. That is the safe approach. And because there are so few jobs, there are so few seats in college and university, there are so few jobs available, there is such a scarcity of jobs that's why parents want children to focus only on academics on mugging up everything getting the highest marks getting the degrees so that they can get one of those few precious jobs if children start doing research because they have the intelligence and the aptitude for that where are the research jobs in this country how many research institutions do we have either in biology in biochemistry physics science astronomy uh, computing technology do we have any research institutes do we have private 
companies that uh, that uh, encourage research for instance in the us lots of private companies do their research in house so there is a great demand for talented researchers in technology in physics in mathematics in the finance sector and so on in india there is no such thing because the government has not created the right kind of environment for entrepreneurship and startups today things are changing okay so let's not uh, say nothing is happening but it's we are not there yet we have not yet reached the kind of um, we have not yet constructed or created the kind of environment you have for instance in silicon valley where where good ideas great ideas get funding you don't need to beg people for funding you will get funds if you have a good idea and your your project will take off so indians like i said they are they are the people who are essentially the core of silicon valley they are the ones driving all the research and all the progress on all, all the technology in the us so it tells you how intelligent and how creative and how brilliant indians are and we have 1.3 billion, billion billion indians in india so imagine if you unleash the true potential of of indians in india what they will be able to achieve so that's why we need to create this environment and once that happens once there will be opportunities for research once there once there will be a great demand for intelligent talented brilliant researchers then indian parents will realize that it is fine to do research they will then encourage their children to do research because then the opportunities will be available so it is something you we have to understand the majority of parents want their children to do well in life right so that is why they discourage their children from doing research because they see the world from a different perspective they have seen they have experienced the world more in in, in at greater depth than the children have and so it it unfortunately it does make sense right that's how it is all right okay let's take some more questions malika says bibek debroy once said that 95% of ex- existing sanskrit manuscripts are not translated do you think that these texts may contain critical knowledge about math and sciences which is still unexplored so i agree with the statement that more than 95% of the texts that are available are not translated they have not been cataloged they have not been digitized they are crumbling and turning into dust and that is the crying shame in this country that we simply don't care about our heritage and it is the government's responsibility to to, to do this the asi and other organizations who simply don't care it's a crying shame i think there could be a lot of valuable knowledge that could open up uh, new paradigms for us right it could give us a much richer understanding of our past of, of what our uh, ancestors lifestyle was like what achievements they did what uh, knowledge they discovered about mathematics about the sciences certainly it is certainly very possible there could be certain mathematical discoveries that we are not aware of possibly so yes i agree that those texts may contain very interesting um, facts about our ancient history that we have lost and 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 the discoveries in mathematics and the sciences that we are not aware of and that is why i have been saying for a very long time we need to preserve those manuscripts we need to digitize all of them that's the first step and then translate them into various other indian languages english also for if, if the world wants to 
partake in the knowledge yeah so that that should happen there should be a a, a project for doing that and unfortunately it's not happening right now what is the ministry of culture doing they have the funds they have the funds every state government has the funds to do this but they won't do it i was once on a on a tv debate about uh, about some excavation or something in in the state of orissa and there was a, <laughs> a gentleman from the orissa government on on the tv on the tv discussion and they were talking about the fact that the monsoon is coming that's why we are going to have to stop the archaeological work for a few months and so on so i asked these asked the gentleman that you have the funds and everything why don't you create a world class museum one only one museum in orissa where you can keep all these priceless artifacts so that the people of orissa kalinga can see what their heritage is like and this gentleman was unable to answer me because he he agreed we have the funds but it looks like there is no political will and i am not trying to single out the state of orissa this applies to every state in india and the entire indian governance system they simply don't care they have the funds to do everything they want they have the funds to create one world class museum in every indian state but there is no political will for that you know and we have the funds to digitize and preserve all the manuscripts easily but there is no will to do that it is not a priority which is so disappointing okay okay what about this question skd says is a war expected between india and china in the near future it feels like a war is coming china entering pok and asking their citizens to stock on food and so on it does appear like a war is coming i'm not sure where the war will be the chinese are more concerned about taiwan they want to uh, integrate taiwan they want to uh, conquer and annex taiwan and make it part of china because the the, the the island of taiwan is ruled by a different system under a different system it is a democratic separate nation the chinese say it's not a separate nation it's part of china well unfortunately that's not the reality so they want to conquer china but what about india and china because see the chinese have massed a significant number of troops on the tibetan border with india and india has uh, responded in kind india has also massed up uh, force forces and other things infrastructure equipment on the on the tibet border to counter the chinese build up over there so yeah it it is possible that you may have a chinese misadventure they may try to do another short sharp war like in 1962 if they try it they are welcome to try but then they should be ready for what what comes next so it is possible that a war may be initiated by the chinese with india in the near future and it is also possible they may try to initiate uh, they may try to attempt an invasion of taiwan if they are stupid enough to do that because uh, typically the chinese are very risk averse they don't do something unless they are they feel that they are certain to win but right now the chinese economy is slowing down significantly uh, there are all these bankruptcies of big companies like evergrande etc so it may push the chinese leadership into a corner and make them desperate to grab whatever they can while they still have the chance before the economy goes down further so yeah that makes people desperate and that's where you kind kind of try and stretch and grasp whatever you can so that may cause china china to indulge in a misadventure maybe with india or maybe with taiwan we are i think quite pre- 
prepared for it and uh, yeah so it is a possibility let's see maybe in the next few months maybe in the next year or two it may happen i hope it doesn't happen but if it happens we will teach them a lesson uh, shantu nandi says what is the contribution of amartya sen in india's economy his contribution is zero okay let's okay what about this question ashish bora says why does no one talk about the massacre of native americans it's a very inconvenient thing to talk about because it will expose the fact that the continent of north america and south america actually belongs to the natives not to the european origin people the continent was stolen from the native americans and uh, there was this horrific genocide that took place over there over a couple of centuries i would say at least 100 million native americans were massacred in north america at the hands of the european uh, invaders the british the french etc and their land was stolen from them and that is the present day nations of canada and the united states and even today they are essentially second class citizens the natives in these two countries they live in reservations where there is no infrastructure there is there are no facilities nothing and uh, there is a great deal of racism against them so certain kinds of lives don't matter in america there is the truth about about america you know so it's very inconvenient to talk about native americans and what they had to undergo so that's why no one talks about it dev sharma says should we really support taiwan because at the end of the day they also claim arunachal pradesh and tibet as well so what would be the difference if taiwan is in power there would be no difference uh, the government of taiwan also considers tibet and arunachal pradesh to be part of china so there is no real difference you see so we have to uh, indians they don't see the big picture unfortunately because we are not taught this we don't have access to this information and indians are very they 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 feel that we should be big fans of taiwan and big fans of various certain other countries and they don't see whether the 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 same kind of feeling is reciprocated or not if taiwan was really a friend like indians like to say a friend of india then would they ever claim tibet to be part of china and arunachal pradesh to be part of china they would not they would respect the feelings of the people of, of tibet and uh, india's perceptions of its boundaries they, they they don't respect it so you know what uh, that's that's the reason why uh, the indian government at least is not that strong in uh, supporting taiwan people ask me why doesn't india support taiwan why doesn't india come out in support of taiwan well that, that's one reason why the taiwanese are the same attitude as the chinese communist party when it comes to the india china boundaries and the dispute which the which well it's it's something that's left over from history it is something that we should have solved in the 1940s and 50s but we did not so that's the reality they also claim the same thing isn't it interesting uh mr right trooper says why was the indian subcontinent always invaded from the west but not the east 
For instance, Bengal faced invasions from the west despite it is situated despite being situated on the very east of the region. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. Maybe because there was no significant uh, empire to the east. And there was no Abrahamic religion that, <laughs> that emerged in the east, right? So maybe it's just an accident of history. We did have migrations into India from the east. For instance, the Thai people, they migrated into present-day Assam. The, they are called the Ahom people, the, the ancestors of the Ahom people. So if you look at the culture of Assam, it is a beautiful syncretic culture which has elements of the Thai culture and the old Thai religion or, or belief system. And it is now mixed with Indian uh, Indian culture, Indian genetics and all that. So it's a very interesting mixture. So you had a migration of this, uh, of this ethnic group into Assam. But yes, typically you would you have if you look at the big picture, there has been no actual invasion of India from the east. It's always been from the west, and the invasions have also happened from from the north. For instance, you had the uh, the Scythian and Hunnic invasions, and also the Kushan invasions. Now, the Kushan invasion, the Hunnic invasion, the Scythian invasion were not as, in any way as destructive as the. Turkic invasions, because the Huns who tried to invade India, they eventually succeeded to some extent. They peacefully and harmoniously assimilated into the Indian, Indian population. They did not try to impose a foreign language, foreign culture on India. They adopted Indian culture and religion and traditions. The Huns. The same goes for the Scythians, who essentially were Indian origin people, if you go back a few thousand years before that. And same goes for the Kushans descendants of the Tukarians, Tushara people. So these were invasions that did not really uh, harm India's culture and demographics in any way. The Turkic invasions and the subsequent European invasions are what really harmed India. So if you look at the bigger picture, it's always been waves of migrations out of India, a few small-scale invasions into India. But what's changed is what happened in the past 1,000 or so years. After the emergence of the Abrahamic religions to the West. Okay, let's take some more questions. My views on Bibi Lal receiving the Padma Bhushan. Can you briefly explain some of his interesting theories and overall career? It's a great thing that he got this award while he is still alive. He could most likely, most probably be the world's greatest living archaeologist. In the West, they call Dr. Zahi Hawass, the Egyptian e Egyptologist, to be the world's greatest archaeologist. I disagree. I think Dr. Uh, Professor Bibi Lal is the greatest archaeologist in the world. He was the head of the ASI and he, did, he actually did some good work as the head of the ASI. And his career as an archaeologist uh, spans spans more than 50 years, more than five decades. He published lots of articles, lots of books about Indian archaeology. And uh, he disagreed with the Aryan invasion theory. He demonstrated that this theory is false. But his, uh, his voluminous body of work was never incorporated into, India, into India's history textbooks. They marginalized him. They sidelined him, the Indian historians. So it is great that he has got this recognition. I'm really happy for him. 
uh, his theories overall career so i that's what it is it's like 50 years he has published some very interesting books i have a couple of his books somewhere here the rig vedic people is one book that i can refer, refer recommend to you the rig vedic people by dr v bilal uh, it's about the archaeological findings in the saraswati sindhu region it shows that these people there is there is this uh, continuity of culture and traditions from the harappan times to the present day in india which means it shows that the this culture etc did not come from central asia or, or eastern europe or whatever with the, with the so called aryans it's always been part of india and so on so that's a little bit about him so you can uh, i would uh, highly recommend that you acquire a couple of his books such as the rigvedic people which will give you a better understanding of uh, his work uh yeah i think i answered this question uh his contribution to india's economy is zero is he a communist he's a marxist yeah yes the best book to learn sanskrit is what chinmay solanki asks uh, there's a book in hindi called sanskrit swayam shikshak very good book uh, if you study that book you'll be able to start speaking in sanskrit within half an hour and within 3 months you will have a reasonable mastery conversational mastery of the language you won't become a real master of the language but you will be able to actually have conversations and understand the language reasonably well just 3 months so it's called sanskrit swayam shikshak it's a hindi language book it's not in english but it's the best book i have ever found for learning sanskrit okay let's see what else we have oops hang in there okay sid says i read an article in india facts it claims that the narmada man existed in india 300000 lakh years ago which was a homo sapiens this debunks the out of africa theory my views uh, i am aware of the uh, narmada man let's take a look at what narmada man was and looked like let me let's do real time research okay let's go to trusty old google and see narmada man so what does it say about this person Narmada Homo erectus a possible ancestor of the modern indian so this is not homo sapiens it's homo erectus which is an extinct species of human notre cela continue okay it's in french let's go back let's see some other uh, source what is this here let's take a look at what it says here so human skeleton remains about 300 to 150000 years ago middle pleistocene period is this sapiens what is it homo erectus this is not homo sapiens right so that is the thing it does not disprove the out of africa theory it shows we we, we are quite aware of the fact that we had other homo species 
in Asia, in Eurasia, much a long time before uh, Homo sapiens arrived in Eurasia. We have the so-called dragon man or something in in China. Uh, we had uh, they have found other other uh, fossilized remains in Eastern Asia that are more than a million years old. I think it was Homo erectus or something. I'm not sure which which species it was, but yes, you have had we have had the presence of other species of humans in Eurasia long before Homo sapiens ever appeared in Eurasia. So the Narmada man was not Homo sapiens; he was Homo uh, erectus, which is a species that came before us. So it does not debunk the out of Africa theory. The out of Africa theory is the best theory we, uh, we have as of today to explain the origin of, of uh, Homo sapiens, our species. So according to this, to this theory, from the best data that we have, from the overall data, all the data points that we have, it the, all this data, it indicates that our, uh, our origin was somewhere in Africa a long time ago. About uh, uh, the human chimpanzee divergence is supposed to have happened about six or four million years before today. Before that, we have we were the same species, our ancestors. So then, so that's where the origin of the Homo species, the various Homo species, hominin species, uh, occurred in Africa. And then about 70, 75,000 years ago, before today, there was an out of Africa migration uh, near Yemen, Djibouti, Yemen. And that's how the uh, non-African humans originated, which is again Homo sapiens, which is also the people that you have in Africa. So we have the same species, but that's the out of Africa migration that uh, that the theory is, uh, which is the theory that you are referring to. So Narmada man does not, the existence of Narmada man in India does not debunk the out of Africa theory, unfortunately, right? That's what we just saw. But yeah, that's a good question. Aditya Trivedi says, if Gandhi is a thief, well, I'm not sure he's a thief, but yeah, okay, I know, I, I understand what your sentiment is. Then why did Sardar Patel support Nehru and Gandhi? And why did he uh, leave the Prime Minister's seat to Jawaharlal Nehru? Well, that's a very good question. Why did Mr. Patel do that? He could have been the Prime Minister of India. I mean, the Congress people voted for him. He got 14 votes and Mr. Nehru got zero votes or one vote, whatever. It was overwhelmingly in support, in favor of Mr. Patel to be the first Prime Minister of India. Then Mr. Gandhi asked Patel to step down and allow Mr. Nehru to become the Prime Minister. And Mr. Patel agreed. So Mr. Nehru was selected by Mr. Gandhi to be the Prime Minister of India. It was not a democratic election by any means whatsoever. So he became the Prime Minister of India undemocratically. And today they teach us democracy. They complain about not having enough democracy in India today. So why did Mr. Patel support Nehru and Gandhi? Well, I don't know why he did that. Why did he do that? Your allegiance is supposed to be to the nation and to the people, not to some individual, right? So I don't know why Mr. Patel did that. I would also like to remind all of you about the events of 1946, the great uh, Indian Navy revolt, 
which threatened to wipe out Britain's existence in India. If that revolt had gone on for a week or two more, it would have spread to the Indian army. And then within 24 to 48 hours, there would be no Europeans left in India. And what happened was that this uh, revolt of the Indian Navy was quelled by Mr. Patel. And he actually promised them, the the, the guys who were reading, uh, leading the revolt, he promised them that if you lay down your arms and come back to the fold, then there will be no action taken against you. And because there was no political support, they laid down their arms and they were court-martialed and jailed. So this promise was a false promise. So that's Mr. Patel. So we have to understand that all of these leaders, there are multiple sides to their personality and to their history. I'm not saying he's good or bad or whatever. I'm not passing any judgment. I'm simply pointing to the facts, to the historical facts. So Mr. Patel agreed to step down, agreed to step aside in favor of Mr. Nehru. And we know the consequences of that decision. It hurt India immensely. So why did Mr. Patel do that? Why did Mr. Patel do something that hurt India in such in such a such a terrible manner? And why did he not support the the uh, Indian Naval revol- Revolt? Because if he had supported the Indian Navy Revolt, there would have been no partition of India, right? So yeah, it's a history is interesting, very interesting. So I don't know why he did that. Only he can answer. Okay. Why? See, when when you ask me, I mean, I can see some other questions here. I don't know why he did that. I I can't read people's minds. And I have not studied Mr. Ambedkar in any detail. So I don't know. So there are certain people whom I have not studied. I have certain interests. And I studied, and, and I study historical figures and personalities that align with my interests. I have certain criteria for people whom I consider to be great. I don't consider a a historical figure to be great because everybody else calls him great. I have criteria of my own. And if somebody meets those criteria, then I will study that person in detail. Other people I simply am not interested in. And that's why I have not studied many, many historical personalities, many important historical personalities. I have not studied them in detail. And one of them is Mr. Ambedkar. I'm sure he was a very significant uh, person. He is given the credit credit of framing India's constitution. Okay, great. All right. But uh, I have not studied his life and his history and his works, etc. in any detail whatsoever. And therefore, I am not aware of why he did this, if he actually did do it. So, don't know. Sorry. Who deserves to be called father of India? Shashwat asks this. Well, India was not born in 1947. So nobody from that time period deserves to be called the father or the mother or whatever of India. India is named Bharat. So it's named after King Bharat. So maybe he is one of the people who can be called the founder or the father of India. I can think of some great historical personalities like Lord Ram, Lord Krishna etc., who could come close to uh, actually deserving such a title. 
but these little lilliputian personalities like mohandas gandhi etc don't deserve to be called the father of india you see that is my personal opinion i know lots of people will hate me for saying this so be it so i i don't have any any person in mind who i would say deserves to be called the one person who is the father of india india is a very very old civilization more than 10000 years old at the minimum so we don't even know who the real founders are you know we don't know most likely the foundation of our our ethnicity our civilization happened some 60 70000 years ago or maybe 50 60000 years ago after the out of africa migration we are the oldest population group in the world because we have the highest genetic diversity in our population outside of africa which tells us that we are the oldest population and ethnic group in the world so you know when it comes to indian culture indian civilization there have been many people who contributed many of those names are lost in time so i don't think any person could be called the father of india if if one person has to be given this title it could be king bharat it could be king rama lord krishna perhaps these people their work actually has that uh, has had that impact so you essentially asking me <laughs> who is the greatest indian right that's what you're actually asking who can be considered to be the greatest indian so what is the criterion for greatness that's the that's what i would ask you again do you have a set of criteria for a person to be considered great i mean is somebody to be considered great because all the historians call him or her great if the romila thapars and irfan habib habibs call somebody great does it mean does that mean that that person is great or is do we need to have a set of criteria i would say that a person should be called great if they have impacted lots of people in a positive way the larger your impact the greater you are the more lives you touch and transform the greater you are and that transformation has to be positive not negative mao tse tung killed 100 million chinese so he impacted at least 100 million chinese lives but the impact was horrible so i don't call him great joseph stalin called uh, killed 30 40 million or more russians so he had a huge impact but there was a very negative impact Lord Krishna impact, impacted an entire civilization. He touched the lives of millions of people. Right? He he changed the destiny of the subcontinent of Indian civilization. He ensured the defeat of the adharmi adharmic kauravas. And he ensured that the incompetent pandavas were sent into exile into the Himalayas. Now again I'll get hated for saying this. did somebody like yudhishthir deserve to be the king of india a person who could not control his gambling impulses who gambled away his wife and his brothers did a person like that deserve to be the king of india no he was incompetent he could not control his base impulses did somebody like arjun deserve to be the king of india he was a great warrior very brave but he faltered on the battlefield he was not willing to fight what's the point of being a great warrior if you can't do the right thing a person like that doesn't deserve to be the king of india so lord krishna transformed the entire dynamics of india he got rid of all these incompetent and adharmi people and he did the right thing for the country so that is a huge impact he impacted the entire 
civilization and he is still revered today so that is a big positive impact these are criteria you know so <laughs> so you know that's the kind of criteria you need to have to consider somebody great don't start considering people great and lions and whatever because everybody else says that and then when i say something contrary to that <laughs> i get this backlash so please please use your intelligence you are all intelligent use your intelligent intelligence have your own criteria for judging somebody to be great or not great please do that use your intelligence don't be sheep don't use the results of other people's thinkings don't form your opinions don't base your opinions on other people people's opinions use your own intelligence please do that right okay let's take some more questions why didn't lord krishna crown himself the king of bharat because he was not interested in power okay let me ask let me ask this question everybody um, so one of the names of lord krishna is parthasarthi the sarthi of the parth parth means the archer that is arjun so he was the sarthi the charioteer of the great warrior arjun right so it is people mostly see lord krishna as somebody who served the pandavas right so was he serving the pandavas this all the political machinations that lord krishna accomplished did he do it in the service of the pandavas many people tell me that he backstabbed the pandavas by sending them into exile and getting rid of them because he had his own ulterior motives and all the question is this very is the question is very simple whom did lord krishna serve did he serve the kauravas we know he did not but did he serve the pandavas did he did he did he participate in the mahabharata war on behalf of the pandavas or did he have some other motives the answer is very simple he served the civilization he served bharat he served dharma he got rid of the adharmi kauravas and then after the war was finished he sent the incompetent pandavas into exile and then he crowned somebody else as the king of bharat because he was not interested in power he was interested in getting rid of all these people who would have taken india to its doom and then he whom did he crown as king i don't remember some young young guy i think a descendant of the pandavas i think so one of the people of that lineage but somebody new and somebody fresh somebody who could be guided in the right direction so he was not interested in power he was interested in serving the people the culture the civilization of india and he was he was interested in serving dharma he was a servant of dharma and the people and the civilization that is why he did not crown himself king of bharat he was not doing him all this for personal glory and personal ambition that's the reason why that's why he is considered to be so great that's why indians today worship him as an incarnation of lord vishnu the same as lord ram please understand this these are lessons in leadership true leadership what are my views about chhatrapati shivaji maharaj i think he is one of the greatest kings of india in the past 1000 years i have said this before uh yeah so in one sentence that's my view about him one of the greatest servants of india one of the greatest leaders of india in the past 1000 years it's tragic that he died so young he died in his 50s i think if he had lived another 10 20 years he could have transformed india even further 
and made India a better place. So it's tragic that he died so young. He was a really, really great king. Okay, let's take some more question. How are Brahmins responsible for conversion of Hindus? I have no idea how Brahmins are responsible for any conversion of anybody. There is this great, I mean, I, I'm not sure, Sukhdev, if you you have this. Uh, but overall, we have this, uh, this atmosphere today in India, which is uh, driven by the education system, by the leftists, by the Marxists of of anti-Brahmin sentiment. They now term Hinduism as Brahminism, which means that they, they, the deeper thing is that Hinduism is an evil, regressive, backward religion. And because they call it Brahminism, they are trying to now put all the blame on the Brahmins. So they are trying to further divide society. And I don't know where all these stories come from. Brahmins are responsible for this or that or whatever. So it's it's just unfortunate it it makes me sad to see this you know so i i don't know in how brahmins are responsible for any sort of conversion in any way whatsoever i just don't know how it is so that is not consistent with the facts was nalanda university the best university of its time i think it was one of the great universities i think there were many great universities at the at the time in ancient india so i would not say it was the best university but it was the one that is the most in the spotlight for what Bhakti Arkhilji did, did, did there. In one day, he beheaded more than 5,000 professors, teachers, students, more than 5,000, I'm sure, in one day. And then he burned the library, which burned for several months. So, yeah, it was one of the one of the greatest universities, for sure, in India. But we had many other great universities. Sharda Peet in uh, northern India, present-day Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Takshashila in western India, present-day Present day what? Punjab? Pakistani Punjab, I think, or Pakistani Sindh, one of these two regions. Takshashila, Vikram Shila in, in, where was it? Was it in Bengal? Present day Bangladesh? Odantapuri, Tilhara. Uh, I can't remember all of them right now, but we had lots and lots of great universities on par with Nalanda, if not even greater. Uh, the oldest that we know of is Takshashila, which is at least two and a half thousand years old. At least. It's probably much, much older than that. Maybe it's a couple of thousand years older than that, possibly. We know that Vishnugupta Chanakya was a professor of politics and political science in Takshashila University. And that is about two and a half thousand years before today. So that was already a major established university at that time, two and a half thousand years before today. So. It's it's clear that it's it, it would have been much older than that. So yeah. Right, let's take some more questions. Very interesting questions I'm getting. Keep it coming, guys and girls. Keep it coming. Love it. Okay, Kunal asks, why doesn't India care about Northeast India development and its culture and heritage? Be see, I'll tell you what, yeah, it is true that the northeast of India which is actually the far east of India, it is totally marginalized and neglected. Almost nobody is aware of it. If you ask somebody about Manipur, they'll say, what? Manipal? <laughs> right? No one knows about this because we are not taught this in the education system. I don't know what is being taught in the education system today, but when I was a kid, there was nothing at all 
about the northeast of india no reference to the northeast of india the only thing was some some passage in the horrific civics uh, syllabus in which you had to memorize all the capitals of all the states in which you had to so that's when you came to know about itanagar and imphal and aizol and all that but apart from that there was no mention of india, the history the culture etc of northeastern india and it is also true that after independence after the dominion status of 1947 the uh, government of india consciously gave northeast of in- northeast india stepmotherly treatment there was absolutely no development in this region the uh, neh- mr nehru allowed the rampant christianization of the so called tribal peoples of northeast india all the nagas have lost their culture today they they believe that their ancestors were were barbarians they were uncivilized etc come on man so it's it's tragic what's happened the the so called uh, naga people they are they are a group of uh, different ethnicities different tribes essentially they had their own beautiful culture and the british portrayed them as 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 naked people as barbarians as primitive and that is the first step towards converting people to christianity and today the people of nagaland and other parts of northeast india have lost their culture completely they are completely rootless uh, so there was no development there no infrastructure development no industries nothing and that's why so many insurgencies came up in this region and uh, there were no hospitals developed there there was no healthcare nothing so this is these are the policies of the nehruvian regime and subsequent congress party regimes so that is one of the reasons why uh, it's not that the people of india don't care about the northeast it's that the people of india aren't aware about the northeast if you don't teach children about the northeast of india how will they know about it and then when they see somebody who comes from assam or or nagaland or manipur they will think that it's from a different country because the ethnic the ethnic features look different that is the is the tragedy of the northeast they are as much indian as anybody else but people just don't know about it today i think in the 21st century there is more awareness thankfully but if the nehruvian regime and its successors were still in power it would be the same story there terrorism insurgency separatism and no development thankfully things are changing now i hope there are still major problems in the northeast but at least it is going in the right direction so i would not say that the people of india don't care about the northeast and its culture and heritage it is the government of india which has always consistently given the northeast of india step motherly treatment right uh we tend to blame the people of india for everything that's wrong with india oh there there is no traffic uh, sense in india there is garbage everywhere tell me something is there any traffic law being implemented are there any 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 uh, traffic police to enforce any laws and when it comes to the garbage <laughs> in india let's say you put all the garbage in the trash first of all the government doesn't provide trash bins in in the streets and all that so people are forced to to dump the garbage wherever they can right they have no control over what happens outside they can only control what happens inside their house so people keep their houses clean but the outside is all in the hands of the local municipal councils and what not and you, we know how they are deeply corrupt many of them i'm not saying all of them i'm not saying all are corrupt I, i but we know that many are corrupt 
and many don't care about the people so that's why you have all this all these problems garbage now they sometimes will tell you to segregate garbage into wet and uh, non wet or what dry etc and they'll say that we'll recycle it do they actually recycle anything they dump everything into the ocean in the rivers so that's the thing right we tend to blame the people of india for everything that's gone wrong with india the truth is is it's the colonial government of india the present day colonial governance system and institutions of india that are responsible for everything that's wrong in this country and that is what what the attitudes that prevail with respect to the northeast the ignorance about the northeast it's because of these government policies education policies and all that so i think that once people become aware of the northeast they do care about the northeast but people simply aren't aware the majority of people today so that is a great tragedy of the northeast <laughs> deepan bhattacharya says was chanakya a socialist as claimed by many people as the gap between the rich and the poor was less during the mauryan mauryan samrajya you see if you look at socialist uh, this is a very good question by the way deepan so if you look at socialist societies you have this huge gap actually you have a huge gap look at the ussr hmm the ussr was technically a socialist nation the union of soviet socialist republics the overall population of the ussr was in poverty but the members of the communist party the politburo they lived in ultra luxury that was a shocking gap between rich and poor look at china today china is no longer a socialist country it's a capitalist society it's an imperial dictatorship with capital with capitalism but before the reforms of deng xiaoping you had the same situation in socialist china people living in poverty and the communist party bosses living in ultra luxury same thing you would see in fidel castro's cuba and so on and so forth in the various soviet bloc satellite states of eastern europe the same situation socialism inevitably creates a shocking gap between the rich and the poor it's just that the poor are so many in number that it looks like everyone is the same that's what socialism does during the mauryan samrajya everybody was prosperous just look at the statistics the data of which angus madison has has published india accounted for over a third of the world's gdp until 0 ad and after that before 0 ad it would have been even more india would have accounted for more than half the world's gdp that's how prosperous india was and the prosperity was not concentrated among the elites there were no elites right the entire population was prosperous the standards of living were very high that is not socialism that is the indian economic system the dharmic economic system which did not depend on the plunder and the ravaging of the environment and its resources it was sustainable development and growth so there is no socialism in there you can read vishnugupta chanakya's economic policies in detail in the arthashastra there was no socialism there it's a totally different paradigm that was in place at the time so that is my answer sir it's a very interesting question very good perspective 
to bring into this uh, matter. Okay, Shyam says, do you think it is impossible for India to get the UN permanent seat because of China? I think it's impossible. The Chinese will never allow India to become uh, a part of the uh, Security Council, a, a permanent member of the Security Council because it will put India on the same status, on the same level as China. So India was supposed to be the original member. The, one of the founding members of the UN Security Council, one of the five permanent members with veto powers and all that. This was offered to India repeatedly, repeatedly. It was offered in 1950, in 53, and in 55. First, it was offered by the Americans to Mr. Nehru. Mr. Nehru said, no, not at the cost of China. Please bring China in first, then we'll talk about India. In 1953, again, the Americans offered India. They offered Mr. Nehru a seat on the a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It is written in Shashi Tharoor's book. Shashi Tharoor is a great uh, devotee of Mr. Nehru, isn't he? Mr. Shashi Tharoor, the great eminent Mr. Shashi Tharoor. He has written it in his published book, The Invention of India or whatever the hell the name, the name of the book is. So 1953, Mr. Nehru was again offered this. He again rejected it. In 1955, the US and USSR got together and again offered the same thing to India. And Mr. Nehru again rejected it. He said, not at the cost of China. Put China first. And after that, the Chinese became one of the five founding members, permanent members, not founding members, but permanent members of the UN Security Council. And India was never considered again. And they can they are now able to use that power they have to hurt India in many, many, many ways. Thanks to Sri Jawaharlal Nehru. And Mr. Nehru in parliament in 1955 gave a categorical statement that India has never been offered a permanent seat of any kind in the UN Security Council. Mr. Nehru lied in parliament. He lied to the people of India as prime minister. Shocking, isn't it? Right. Okay, let's take some more questions. Let's take some more questions. Lots of questions. Something interesting that I've not answered before. Mayank Sharma says, why is there a sudden change in the scripts of the Indus Valley Civilization and Vedic period at the time of the so-called Aryan invasion, migration, tourism? Which, which, which script has changed? So I am not aware of any sudden or gradual change in the scripts of the uh, Saraswati Sindhu civilization. I'm not aware of anything. We know that during this phase, the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian civilization, you have all these uh, tablets, etc., steatite tablets, clay tablets, on which you have these uh, symbols that look like a script. And that is still undeciphered. So the Saraswati Sindhu script is not deciphered. Yes, we know that. It's, it's there. Now, where, where is the sudden change in script? Which new script came in? Eventually, you had the uh, Brahmi and Karoshti scripts that came into, uh, that, that became prevalent, but there was no sudden change. It was a gradual change. And it seems that the Brahmi script may actually be somehow related to the uh, 
script of the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian civilization. And again, you don't you don't find any of these scripts, either the Brahmi script or the Kharoshti script or the Saraswati Sindhu script anywhere outside India. So if it was the consequence of a migration, invasion, tourism into India, then you would find evidence of these scripts outside of India as well. In Central Asia, Eastern Europe, wherever these alleged Aryans are supposed to have come from. So that is not the case. Right? So, like I have been saying so often, so many times I have said this, there is not a single data point that can point to an actual Aryan invasion or migration or tourism or picnic into India. I mean, they say today, based on genetics, that the Yamnaya people are the Aryan invaders or migrants into India. Right? The Yamnaya who wiped out the population of Europe, the male population of Europe. Now, the question is, if the Yamnaya are the Aryan invaders or migrants into India, why didn't they wipe out Indian males? Like the way they wiped out the European males. Why didn't they do that? And in Europe, you find this sudden change in the archaeological record. A sudden change in the culture, a sudden change in the burial practices. You find uh, these mass graves of people who have been murdered brutally and thrown into the pits. So that is a clear evidence of a massive invasion, a sudden, abrupt change in everything in Europe. You don't see anything like that in India. You don't see any evidence of Yamnaya style graves in India. Right? Show me a single Yamnaya burial in India. Anywhere in India, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in present-day India, anywhere. There is not a single such burial in India. So these are all lies. It's simply lies. That's all I can say about this. Okay. Mm. Digvijay Thakur says, was Mohandas Gandhi a true believer in the Gita? If yes, why did he always stop Indians to do the real karma, which is to fight the Brits for freedom? So here's a very little known fact about Mohandas Gandhi. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi was not a Hindu. He was brought up in a sect called the Pranami sect. His mother, Putli, Putli Ben or Putli Bai or whatever her name was, was a member of an obscure minority sect called the Pranami sect. So, if you uh, research the Pranami sect online, you will find what their practices and beliefs were. In this sect, they held the Torah, the Bible, the Old and New Testament, and the Bhagavad Gita as sacred texts. And all of these texts were were treated as sacred texts and they were studied by the members of the Pranami sect. So understand this, the Bhagavad Gita is a Dharmic text. The Torah, the Bible, the New and Old Testament and the Quran are non-Dharmic texts. Essentially, you could say these are adharmic texts. And these uh, Pranami people, they hold these non-Dharmic texts to be sacred which tells you that this is not a dharmic sect, right? And Mr. Gandhi has written about this, that he grew up uh, reading the Bible, the Quran, etc. And he considered these books to be sacred books for him. 
so one could not one cannot make the claim that he was a true believer in the gita or that he was a real hindu if you considered a non dharmic text to be a sacred text that automatically makes you not a hindu it's very simple so mr gandhi was not a hindu please understand this he i mean historians and the media etc they portray him as a great dharma guru or whatever he was the exact opposite of that and that kind of explains much of his political actions right uh could you please tell us the significance of the kerala school of mathematics in the field of astronomy and mathematics calculus so the kerala school of mathematics was a wonderful group of mathematicians it was a very good mathematical tradition that spanned several centuries it was wiped out by tipu sultan the tyrant the butcher of mysore so they had amazing mathematicians like nilakantha i think one of them and jeshtadev one of them one of their names was and they essentially discovered calculus at least two centuries before newton is supposed to have discovered calculus so they discovered a uh, calculus infinite series and much more and it was jesuit priests who came to india who stole this knowledge transmitted it to the west and that's how it was independently discovered by newton and leibniz in the same year imagine something as momentous a discovery as calculus being as accidentally discovered by two europeans one in europe one in britain one in england and one in germany in the same year how is it even possible is, can can that be a coincidence no it's not a coincidence it means both of these guys got their hands on a translation and they both claim to have discovered it independently and then there was a big dispute between the two of them as to who was the first neither was the first it was indians who discovered calculus the kerala school of mathematics today these facts are now coming to light but the, but today western historians are trying to say that it was accidental and newton and leibniz discovered calculus independently there was no transmission it was something that was discovered independently which is a lie it was all stolen by jesuit priests and transmitted to europe after being translated okay let's see some more questions i'll take one or two more questions because we are reaching our time limit okay let's see richard says why is there such a dearth of public works such as aqueducts etc in indian history after the harappan phase see india is a river valley civilization we have river valley we, all of our uh settlements towns cities etc they are built around rivers in river valleys this sindhu or uh, indus valley the saraswati valley the seven great rivers in the punjab region saptasindhu region those river valleys the narmada valley the tapti valley the ganga valley the godavari valley and and so many more india is a river valley civilization and when you have such incredible gifts of nature so many great rivers 
then you don't need to build aqueducts. An aqueduct is a, a work of engineering that transports water over long distances. That's what the Roman engineers built. Because the places they ruled, like Judea, etc., Central Europe, and so on, there was a dearth of water there. In India, we did not have that. We had rivers everywhere. So many rivers, so many natural resources. And that's why we did not need to build aqueducts. But we did build great highways, the great, uh, the so-called Great Trunk Road, Grand Trunk Road, whatever, which is alleged to have been built by Sher Shah Suri. That road was in existence during the Mauryan times. Right? It was a very well-maintained road, a very well-maintained highway. It connected Patliputra in the east of India to Takshashila and further in the west of India, which is present-day Bihar and east of Bihar and present-day uh, Pakistan and west. And this was a very well-maintained road. You had uh, rest houses, you had inns, you had hospitals, you had hospitals for animals. All of this, all maintained by the state, all free of charge. You did not have to pay money to use the hospital or the rest house or the inn or whatever. That's the kind of uh, public works we had in India before the past 1000 years. Interesting. Okay, other says Wikipedia says Mahatma Gandhi's mother was a pious, pious Pranami Hindu. Pranami Hindu is an oxymoron, it doesn't go together. Pranamis are not Hindus. If you worship non Dharmic texts, if you consider non Dharmic texts as sacred texts, you are not a Hindu. Simple. So I don't care what Wikipedia says. If you worship non-Dharmic texts, you cannot be considered to be Hindu. It's as simple as that. All religions are not the same. There are only three religions. The three Abrahamic religions. Hinduism is not a religion. It's a, it's a culture. It's a civilization. We don't have one book, one God and one prophet. Right? And we don't consider other religions to be inferior. And we don't believe that you will go to hell if you don't worship my book, my prophet and my God which is what these other three religions do. So if you consider their texts to be sacred, you are no longer a Dharmic person. It's as simple as that. So she may be a pious Pranami, but she was not a Hindu. Okay. Any other questions? Let me see. Okay, let me see one more, if I can find something interesting. Where can I read the Vedas and Puranas? I am not sure. I think uh, you may find some copies online if you look. Uh, it depends on which language you want to read it in. There are some translations of the Vedas and Vedas in English. But I am not sure how reliable or accurate those translations will be. Because there are many, many Sanskrit words that cannot be translated properly into English. For instance, yagna is translated as sacrifice. Yagna is not a sacrifice. A sacrifice is a ritual murder. Yagna is not a sacrifice. But that's how they translate 
our Vedic texts. So I don't know if they can actually be relied upon to actually gain any real knowledge. I think you will find translations online. You may be able to buy translations on various online uh, portals like Flipkart, Amazon, whatever. I'm not sure about the Puranas, where you can find them. But if you look online, you may be able to find most of these things. Some of it may be available only in Sanskrit, for which you may need to learn Sanskrit, which is not a difficult thing to do. So that's what I can say in brief. What would have happened if the British had not come to India? What would modern day India look like? If the British had not come to India, we would all be speaking Marathi or Sanskrit. Because the British destroyed the Maratha Empire. The Marathas had already annihilated the Mughal Empire. The Mughal uh, emperor, emperor still existed, but he was essentially the mayor of Delhi. That's all he was. Right? The Marathas, they, they controlled the entirety of India, most of India, from much of southern, southern India to northern and western India, eastern India, much of it, and all the way up to southern Afghanistan. So that was the Maratha Empire. That's what the British destroyed. If they had not come to India, we would be a Dharmic state, the Hindu Rashtra that everybody demands. And our national language would either have been Marathi or Sanskrit, which would be a million times better than what it is today. So that's what would have happened if the British had not come to India. All right, ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you so much for all the questions. It was wonderful chatting to you all. And I will see you very soon next week in next week's episode. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, all of you. I will see you soon. Bye.